Well, as we're very aware of, today we are celebrating the greatest historical event that mankind has ever seen or witnessed in any way, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave. And I also want you to know something about this. We as Christians could not function without that revelation. We could not do one thing apart from the power of Christ's life that reigns and rules in our hearts. Matter of fact, 10 years ago, the power of Christ's resurrection was put on display here in Ada, Oklahoma. 10 years ago, the resurrected Lord Jesus began to build his church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church in Ada today, 10 years ago. The Lord drew 14 souls together that day in 2009 to to lift up the name of Christ in Ada, and we've been able to continue doing that by his grace. He added many souls to the church during this time period. He's humbled us through trials in this time period. He's taught us many lessons during this time. And in 2015, he most graciously granted us new life by uniting us with Grace Bible Church to form a new church family, a new body that would be stronger, more suited to declare his name to this community. Saints, what we are seeing here today, as you look around at one another, you're seeing a living testimony to the power of the resurrected Savior. That's why we exist. Our living Savior brought this church into existence, and his life is what sustains our existence. It's what produces our growth. It's what empowers our work now and in the future. And I rejoice in this this morning with you. And I want us to set our minds on the power of that work today as we enter into his word. Ten years ago, the Lord Jesus gave me a sermon to preach about his excellence and the power of his resurrection. And that's what he used to begin to build this church. And so today, I want to honor Christ's work by building on that message and preaching to you, uh, for the most part, much of what I preached on the first Sunday that we gathered here together in Christ's name as a church. So, for me to do that, I need you to do something. Turn with me in God's word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Beginning at verse 50 to the end of the chapter. And I want you to listen, though you're familiar, listen carefully, though this is something you know well, and be freshly amazed this morning at this revelation. This is a supernatural message revealed to us by God's grace through the Spirit in the Word. Be freshly amazed as we read this together. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable, this decaying body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Why is it not in vain? Because he is a living Savior, the living Lord. It's his victory that we live in, that we walk in. Do you believe this revelation? 
If you're a part of this church, I pray that you do. Is this revelation evidenced in your life personally? Is it evidenced in our work corporately, our labor? I pray that it is. It must be. Here in this text, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that, that Christ's resurrection power is the very hope that we have of personal salvation, progressive sanctification, ultimate glorification, and the church's perseverance in the midst of difficulties. It's the resurrected power of Christ reigning in us, working through us, clay pots, to declare his glory to the earth. This is the message of hope. There is much hope in this passage. There is powerful hope here. There is a powerful assurance from God himself given to us in this passage. The life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. And we now live for his glory because he reigns in us. We are called on in Scripture to set our minds on things above. Colossians 3 says, set our minds on things above where Christ is. Set our minds on the hope that we have in Christ. And this morning, I want us to do that. I want us to set our minds on what God's word reveals to us about the power of Christ's resurrection. Let me give you an outline just so you can follow along this morning. First of all, God's word reveals to us that Jesus' resurrection was historically promised. Why? Why is that significant? Well, it was to grant us confidence in God's word. God's word reveals to us that Jesus' resurrection was also supernaturally announced to grant us eternal joy. God's word also reveals that the power of Christ's resurrection was physically revealed to grant us our justification before God. And the power of Christ's resurrection is also powerfully evidenced in the lives of the saints to grant us assurance that we are in Christ by his grace. Now, for us to begin to look at this and look at the very first point that I gave you, that, that Jesus' resurrection was historically promised, let's go to Isaiah 53. And don't be afraid, I will not try to exegete every line, though I would like to. Um, one of my favorite places to dwell and look upon Christ and his saving work is here in Isaiah 53. But turn there with me. And you'll see that God's word reveals to us that Jesus' resurrection was historically promised to grant us confidence in God's promises. You recognize, I hope here, that the prophet Isaiah writes about what we now know to be the crucifixion of Jesus 700 plus years before Christ came. Before the Romans invented crucifixion. This should give you great confidence in God's word and his promises. The entire plan of redemption. If you look into the Old Testament, you'll begin to see that it's foretold through the prophets. Bits and pieces throughout this progressive revelation. But here in Isaiah 53, it's like the culmination. It's as if this prophet summarized most beautifully the entirety of what Christ was coming to do for us. So I want you to read this with me and just be, again, freshly amazed at this, this revelation, this historic promise given about the resurrection of Christ that would first come through crucifixion. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm or the power of the Lord been revealed? For, who, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. 
and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, shalom. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, his father, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Speaking of the father and the son. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's good news. This is good news. Historic good news. News that God revealed to us about how he would send his son historically in time, in space, to this planet to take on flesh and be our substitute to atone for our sins and reap the harvest of God's praise and bring that bounty to all those who turn in faith to him. In this passage... Jesus' amazing incarnation is talked about. He came with no form. He was just a common man. His, his incarnation is mentioned. His humiliating sacrifice is mentioned. He was despised by us. But that's not all that's mentioned here. He would not remain despised. He would receive the bounty for his atoning work. His glorious bodily resurrection is spoken of here as well. All these are promised in this revelation. The one who poured out his life is the one who now brings many sons to glory. He's the one who now intercedes for us. This is a historic promise from God. And it should give us great confidence as saints this morning. Church, this this prophecy, if you will, promise was given for that reason. These aren't just random stories that God gives us glimpses of in the Old Testament. There is a reason for the promises and the prophecies that we see here. It is to cultivate something in the immediate people who received it and those who would come after it. It is to cultivate in us confidence in God's word, faith in God, and praise in our Mouths as we see how God worked historically in time to bring about our redemption and the glory of his name through this great humbling incarnation and glorious resurrection. You can see the purpose of why he gives us Isaiah 53. When you go on down into Isaiah 54, it is to cultivate, like I said, faith and praise in us. Look in Isaiah 54, verse 4. After hearing about this work of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he then comes further and says this, For your maker is your husband, or rather, verse 4, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Speaking of forgiveness. Why? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. 
For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. I hope that this cultivates confidence and praise in your hearts this morning. That's the intention. It should cultivate perseverance in your heart as well as as, as this confidence. This is why you can continue on doing the work that you're called into. God has had compassion on you in sending forth his son to be your substitute. This this prophecy is intended to cultivate that. And the reason it does is, is, is this. The one who is spoken of in Isaiah 53, the one who was slain, is telling us now in 54 that he's going to live again to redeem us in the future. Our God reigns because he lives. Our Redeemer rose after making atonement for our sins. This is what makes us able to persevere in the faith. This is what gives us confidence when we look into God's word. We see how he has worked historically to bring about the redemption of his people for his glory. If we set our minds on this historic hope, I believe that we will be greatly encouraged this morning. Our Redeemer lives. Jesus is alive. Let me state the obvious. Something that we often, I think, almost colloquialize by saying, he's, a re- he's alive, he's alive. Yes, but is he living in you? Does his power reign in your life? Is it transforming you? Do you feel his compassion for you? Does that relate to how you minister to others? Your life should be a testimony to the resurrection of Christ. His power working through you, cultivating joy and confidence in you, perseverance in you. Knowing that God has revealed to us this great truth, it should transform us as a people, as a church, as individuals. Because this is a historic promise made manifest in time as we come to the Gospels. Now, secondly, I want you to set your minds on this. God's word also reveals to us that Christ's resurrection was supernaturally announced, supernaturally announced. The first announcement was a supernatural announcement, and it was given to us in a supernatural way, I believe, to, to grant us great joy, eternal joy, because this message came from eternal beings or beings who have been granted eternal, eternal life. This message of the resurrection was proclaimed, announced angelically the very first time. It was angelically announced, again, to, I believe, um, cultivate joy and praise in our hearts. Look with me in Luke 24 to see this. Listen, the angels, as we see here in Luke 24, 1 to 7, you'll see that the angels were the first to announce the glory of the resurrection. And notice, in one sense, as you read this, Maybe how amazed they were that the, per, the people that they proclaimed it to, announced it to, didn't, didn't understand this. Obviously, the angels knew who Jesus was. They knew the power of the one who incarnated himself and took our place. And so they write this in verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went up to the tomb taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, angelic beings, stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. But has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise and on the third day rise. 
Don't you get it? How can you put to death the author of life? He will not remain in the grave. There is no sin in him. Sin is what keeps us there. Christ is sinless. He came forth from the grave, victorious over sin for us. This was a supernatural message, a supernatural announcement that the angels, I believe, longed to proclaim since the incarnation. I believe this is a story, a resurrection story they wanted to tell. They wanted to proclaim because they understood what Jesus went through in the incarnation. I'm sure they were longing to, to, to declare this, this great news as they watched Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. As, as he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and sweat great drops of blood in agony over our sin and what he would do to, to take our place. I'm sure they were eager to say, oh, Lord Jesus, you don't have to suffer like this, but this is the will of God. We want to declare your great worth, but these people can't see it until you finish this work. I'm sure they longed to proclaim that the living one could never die when Christ himself was taking the wrath of God in our place on the cross. And I believe they longed to proclaim this because Christ's resurrection vindicated the holiness of Jesus, their creator and our incarnate savior. His resurrection testified to his holiness, his purity. And the angels knew this and they wanted to see him praised appropriately. How do we feel about that? Do we testify to the resurrection of Christ because we want to declare his great holiness, his purity, his worth? I pray that we do. That was the message that they brought to those first people at the grave. It was a message that brought God glory on earth from the heavens. This is the, the message that the angels still sing. Do you realize that? You realize that the angels are still singing about the resurrection of Jesus. It will continue on for eternity, and you'll be there with them, joining in that heavenly choir All the redeemed will sing about the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection for all eternity. This will be the song on our lips from our hearts. And it makes me wonder when I think about that, why isn't that the case every day? Why? God revealed this to us historically. He he shows us this supernaturally. Why aren't I proclaiming it joyfully? Why, why, why am I not joyfully declaring this song that we'll sing for all eternity? Let's look at the song. Revelation 5, verse 11. I was driving over here this morning thinking about this song, thinking about the work of Christ. And, and the song we just sing, sometimes I tremble just thinking about this. I begin to weep coming over here. This is the one who saved us from our sins. How could we not sing this song in eternity? And how could we not sing this song in time daily? And I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The only reason it says that is because there's not a word in the Greek for millions. Innumerable. Voices of these angelic beings around the throne of God saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. They worshipped Jesus. That's what I want my heart to sing now. Not just in eternity. The host of heaven could not help but declare the greatness of Christ's resurrection. They, they were just in awe of the people who didn't see. How could the living one die? He is alive. Are, are you that amazed that your Savior lives? 
that he lived and he died for you. And he rose to declare you are his now forever. Is your mind so fixed on the resurrection power of Christ and his life that you do this, that you want to do this joyfully like the angels, boldly like the angels? Do you want to declare this? Well, I pray as we look into this, that's what God will cultivate in us. This is the source and the the impetus behind evangelism. It's not notching your Bible to say, I went out and met four people today. That's not what it's about. It's about declaring the greatness of Jesus, your Savior. It's an act of worship, adoration, praise, thanksgiving. That's what evangelism is. Everybody here can do that. If you love him, it'll cultivate this in you. I think if you set your mind on the glory of Christ's resurrection, it'll cultivate joyful praise here, now, when we gather. So it makes our singing full. I think if we set our minds on the work of Christ and his resurrection, I think it'll give us holy boldness in our evangelism. I think it'll give us humble thanksgiving in our prayers and worship of God. And I think it'll fuel our ministry and our future as a church. As we think about the life that now empowers us. To stand as beacons of hope, pointing to Jesus, our living Savior. The resurrection of Jesus is our eternal hope that we offer to sinners. We have been granted that hope by his grace. And as I said, it's through a historic promise that's given to us. It's through a supernatural revelation that's been announced to us. And then thirdly, The resurrection of Jesus was also physically revealed to us for our justification. Go back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, the beginning of the chapter. Let me read this to you, verses 1 to 8. Jesus historically took on flesh, became a man, lived in a real place at a real time. And his physical incarnation taking on flesh was witnessed. His resurrection was witnessed. It was physically revealed. And there was a reason he came down and didn't just show up on Good Friday and go home on Sunday. He came down to live a life for us that we could never live. To declare that we would be right based on his life, not our own. But he really came. This is my point here this morning. He physically revealed God's grace to us in his appearing and in his resurrection that was witnessed to. In 15 verse 1 it says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with that historic promise and prophecy. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. These men could have refuted this, but no, they testified to it. He really did rise from the grave. 500 witnesses. Then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother. Then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. He appeared to me, Paul says. I think Paul is amazed that he would appear to him, the chief of all sinners. But that's who needs him most. He appears... And reveals his glory and his resurrection and his resurrected body. Look, the the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament, they are verified. And the announcements of the angels are confirmed because Christ's resurrection was physically revealed. And it testified to man that this life, this human life that Christ lived and this death that he went under on the cross was a 
perfect offering to God on behalf of those who believe, because no one else could survive this. He had to be truly God and truly man. That's the only reason he could have rose from the grave. He was without sin. His physical resurrection was done to grant us justification. Let me explain what I mean by that. His resurrection proved, like I said, that he was not merely a human, but he was rather divine. Okay? Truly man, truly God. Being the case, that meant he was able to absorb the eternal wrath of God the Father against all the sins of all his people of all time by dying in their place and then rising to declare that his death satisfied, appeased God the Father's justice against our sins. That's how he justified us through his resurrection. It was as if he took our place. God poured out all that we deserved upon his son and he crushed him. And Jesus absorbed it all for us and rose to say their payment is made in full. It's accomplished. They are now in me covered by my righteousness. You need to be freshly amazed by that if you're a believer this morning. On the cross, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God was treated as if He was you in your sins. He was treated on the cross as if He was the filthiest sinner that ever lived. All of the sins of all of those He would die for were placed upon Him. He was appeasing God's justice. Those sins had to be dealt with, yet he survived. How's that possible? Because he was sinless. He was more than a man. He was the God-man. And only the God-man, only the spotless Lamb of God in human flesh could have satisfied God's just demands against our sins. Here's why. Because man had broken God's law. And so man must die to uphold God's justice. But God, the son, Jesus Christ, became a man to do this. He became a man to uphold God's justice and to show us God's mercy personally. God has made a way to show compassion to sinners. And it's through the work of his son. That should amaze us this morning. God, the son, Jesus, lived in complete obedience to God's law for us because we can't. And we won't. We have sin in us. But Jesus did it in our place. Jesus received, though, even after doing that, he received God the Father's full wrath against our sins. And he did it willingly. He went to the cross willingly. And on that cross, as he becomes our substitute in death under God's wrath, I want you to know that God the Father did not simply look at his son and say, I'm going to spare you a little bit of this. I'm going to go easy because you're so righteous. No, he looked upon his son, his only begotten son, the holy lamb of God, sinless, righteous, obedient, glorious, and said, I will crush you because of my people's sins. And he poured the whole vial of his holy wrath out on his son in our place. The lamb was slain because of our sins and God's grace. That's the reason we can rejoice with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.1. Now we can say, those who have trusted in Christ, now there is no longer any condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who trust in Jesus because he became our physical, our real, our glorious, our perfect high priest, our sinless substitute. When he incarnated himself, coming to the came into this world to take our place and he rose to declare, I did it. It is finished. He was the lamb. Who lived the perfect life we could never live. But he wasn't just the lamb of God. 
who is also the scapegoat. He also bore our sins and he took away our guilt as far as the east is from the west. It's immeasurable. He forever released us from God's wrath because he became our sin bearer. This is amazing. His resurrection testifies to this. He did this. He completed this work. He rose victorious over our sins and Satan and death because he was our perfect substitute. He willingly carried our sin guilt and became our substitute on the cross. He appeased God's wrath for us as our sacrifice on the cross. He he died on the cross. He was buried as our representative. But that's not the end, is it? Amazingly, supernaturally, God exalting gloriously, three days later, up from the grave he arose, victorious, Over our sin and for our justification to bring us reconciliation with God. He arose. He came forth from the grave as our victorious substitutes. And only one who is truly human and truly divine could do this. Only Jesus could receive the eternal wrath of God in our place at one time, in its fullness, the the wrath that we would deserve to spend an eternity in hell under, he absorbed it all on the cross and it crushed him to death. And he declared, it is finished. And three days later, he testified to it. It was accomplished. Three days later, he would rise, not to say it is finished, but he's going to rise and say, look, I'm alive. I will be with you always to the end of the age because I am alive. And my power will bring you to life. You will be with me. Our Savior is alive. And he's promised us that we will be with him forevermore because of his resurrection. He declared us to be right by taking our place. God the Father no longer sees our sins, but he sees his son. And that's not all. There's even more. It's like reading Romans 5 and Paul starts in there and says, here's this truth about God's love. And much more. There's much more here than just the fact that we will not see death, spiritual death. But there's more than even that. One day, our physical resurrected Jesus will give us physical resurrection as well. We'll have resurrected, restored bodies one day when he comes again to reign in glory. Look with me in 1 Corinthians 15 again, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, but in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection from the dead or of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, The kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Wow. He's the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who would never see corruption or eternal death. And if you're a believer, that's you. I have preached way too many funerals in my life. And no matter what happens, every time I come before a congregation to preach, and I stand at the casket afterwards, I look into that casket and think, I wish you could get up, but you can't. But I want you to know something. For every saint that we close the casket on, there's going to come a day when those graveyards will become worship fields. They will come forth alive and victorious in Christ. Raised up to newness of life in fullness, resurrected bodies, transformed bodies, restored bodies. You won't even know me when you see me in glory. All right. 
I mean, no scars, no ugliness. It's all going to be reconciled by then, right? The life that we have in Christ is not merely just now to get us through life. It's something that we hope in in the future. He's going to raise us up with him to enjoy him in his fullness, in his resurrected physical fullness. Look at 50 to 57 at the very end again of this passage. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So something's going on. There has to be a transformation. Well, Christ is the first fruits of that transformation. And then in verse 56, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sin is corruptive, corrosive, destructive. The remains of sin will be Reconciled, They will be done away with in Christ. One day this body of death will be given to life, raised up. And, and I think about this and it, it amazes me because I wonder, why do we need glorified bodies? I don't know that we need them. He designed us to have them. But here's one of the things that I think about. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God because we have sin in us. But the power of Christ's life has transformed not only our soul, but it will transform even our bodies. That's how powerful it is. And it has to do that. Because one thing we know about God in Scripture, Isaiah 6 tells us, is that God is holy, holy, holy. When the prophet saw revelation of God, he fell on his face, crying that he was undone. In God's presence, the only way that I can explain and reconcile in my mind that we can stand at the throne of God with the angels and say, worthy is the lamb who is slain is because we've been given bodies that will not be consumed by his glory. Bodies that will reflect the perfect and powerful work of our savior. And every time you see one another in glory, you're going to say that's the work of Jesus. He is to be exalted. In all things, in the future, and in our lives now. When we think about this, it should just it should cultivate joy in us. Thanksgiving. If we set our minds on this hope, I think it'll transform us. It'll transform our lives and our labor presently. It'll transform the way we do ministry here in the future at our church. We do not get past this. We live in the life of Christ. The power of his resurrection. It's the only way we can do ministry. It's through his life working in us to will and to do God's good pleasure. Now, fourthly, my last point here. God's word also clearly reveals to us that the resurrection of Jesus is powerfully evidenced by all those who truly trust in his life. Without the evidence of Christ working in you. There is no assurance. But if you see the evidence of the life of Christ at work in your life, you should have great assurance. Your, your growth may be small. Your fruit may be small. Some people have grape-sized fruit. Some people have watermelon-sized fruit, depending on where they're at in their growth. But here's the thing. If you see any life in you that magnifies Christ, you should have great assurance that he is at work in you because you could not produce life on your own. There is no life in us. There's only death and corruption. Ephesians 2 tells us that. Go there with me. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 begins by telling us that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. In the life that we live, formerly we live basically enslaved to Satan, doing his will, working along the lines of sin and corruption, but then in verse 4, you begin to see there was something that happened. There's a but God statement. And the but God statement is there to tell us that, look, all those who trust in Jesus are transformed by his grace. All those who do that, they'll be transformed not only by his grace, his favor, but they're transformed by the resurrection power of Jesus. It's going to be powerfully evidenced in you if you are a believer the good works and the life that you live will magnify the life of Christ that reigns in you if you are born again. Ephesians 2, 4 says this. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, so that means we have Christ's life working in us. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages, here's why you're saved. So that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Think about that for a second. Think about this. Your spiritual life and your obedience to Christ testifies that he is alive. He is working in you. Contrary to that, though, if you claim to be a Christian... And you're living in sin, unrepentance, reveling in the things that the world revels in. You have no evidence that the life of Christ is at work in you. The life of Christ will produce change in those who are reconciled to God by his grace. We have real power in us at work, dunamis. It's the work of God in us. The life of Christ is reigning through us. Your life should be a powerful, powerful picture and the evidence of the resurrected Savior. The way you live testifies to who lives in you. Are you living in the power of Christ's resurrection? Are you still living in sin? Is your life testifying to his transforming grace, his sovereign rule over you as your Lord, your master. When the Bible speaks in Jeremiah and in the book of Hebrews about God taking away a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, one heart cannot feel, is not sensitive, does not discern or desire the things of God. The other is sensitive and discerns and longs for. That heart is the heart of Christ. If you're born again, that's the heart that he planted in you. That's the heart that should be magnified through you. And I pray that's the case with everyone here this morning. I pray that is your testimony. I pray that you see his work in you. But I also fear that some of you have not experienced the life of Christ at work in you. His, his life is meant to transform our lives. His resurrection testifies to us. If you are a Christian, if you are truly born again, he testifies to us that we have no need to fear God's wrath because he has appeased it for us. We have no fear of failing God spiritually in our labors because he satisfied God's requirements in our place. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. He resurrected and came forth in power to sanctify us and to preserve us. And I pray that that is your comfort. And that is your testimony. That his life is powerfully evidenced in your transformed lives. But as I said, I'm afraid that's not the case with everyone in this room. If you are still living in your sins and your self-righteousness, thinking you don't need the work of Christ, you can gut it out on your own, you can be a Christian without his intervention, without his direction, then I, I, I fear that you are going to face not the joyful face of God, but the wrath of God on your own. And I pray that that's not going to be the case for anybody here. I pray that you're all comforted. No one here fears facing God's wrath in the future because Christ has turned that wrath away as, in our as our substitute. But I think that that's probably not the case. I think there are people here who are not born again. And I cannot preach about the resurrection without calling you to repentance and faith in Christ. So today, as I conclude... I want to beg you, as the Apostle Paul did in 2 Corinthians 5, I want to beg you 
to be reconciled to God. I want to beg you to turn from your sins, the things that you love, that entrap you, that lead your life daily, your idols. Turn from your self-righteousness, thinking that you can do your own thing to get God's pleasure. And turn to the living Savior. Look to the cross of Christ, because that's where God's love and his justice met. That's where you can go to find freedom from your failures, freedom from your sins, and freedom from the wrath of God to come. But don't stay looking at the cross. That's not where the story ends. Look to the cross to see what Christ has done to forgive you of your sins, but then quickly look to the empty tomb. That's the place that testifies that the Lamb of God was slain for sinners like you and like me. And that he conquered sin for us. He took our place and he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He still does that. He still can because he's a living savior, a risen and reigning savior. He lives and he intercedes for all those who draw near to God through him. So this morning, let me encourage you in this. If we want to see this church persevere into the future, we need to keep in mind the power that is granting us the grace to go forward. It's the power of Christ, his life. And so I want to ask you all, not just those who may not believe, but all of you, I want you to look to Christ. Look to him. This is where we're going to find life for this church, strength for this church, endurance in this church, sanctification in our lives, salvation from our sins. Look to Jesus, the living Savior. Let's pray and ask him to be glorified today. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this testimony of your grace in Christ. The revelation of your work, Jesus, that you accomplished testified to through your glorious resurrection from the grave. I pray that you would use that to sanctify us and to preserve our church and to send us out with confidence in your word and transformed lives by your spirit at work in us through your word. I pray that you would be honored as we sing this last song together and that we go forth today glorifying you, giving testimony to the power of your life, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.